Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 10, Grave Concerns at Sparta. Last time on the podcast, we witnessed the first part of King Croesus's search for allies against the Persians. Looking to Greece for help, the king found that there were two likely candidates for military partnership, the cities of Athens and of Sparta. As we saw, however, Athens was under the thumb of the tyrant Pisistratus and his two sons. The city was, in Herodotus's words, oppressed and kept in divided factions by the tyrant. So it sounds like Athens is out of the running. Maybe Sparta will seem better by comparison? Let's find out. Herodotus underlines the contrast between the two cities with a big black marker in the very first sentences of today's text. Quote, and so Croesus learned that Athens was, at that time, being oppressed by such problems, but that the Spartans, having emerged from great evils, had just now conquered the Tegeans in war. So, not only were the Athenians in a bad place, politically speaking, but the people of Sparta were just coming into their glory after escaping a period of particularly poor governance. What kind of poor governance, you ask? Well, in the not-too-distant past, Sparta had been a distinctly dysfunctional city. The Spartans were, as Herodotus puts it, the worst governed people among all the Greeks. Their laws were terrible, and as a result, their society was remote and insular. But then, all of that changed. A Spartan of some renown, Lycurgus, set out to improve his society. To that end, he visited the Oracle of Delphi, hoping to gain some supernatural insight on how to create the best government for his city. However, as soon as he came into her presence, before Lycurgus could even ask a question, the Pythia spoke to him. You come to my rich temple, Lycurgus, beloved of Zeus and of all those who dwell on Olympus. I am unsure whether to address you as a man or as a god, but I rather suspect, Lycurgus, that you are a god. That's not the worst thing to hear from a divine oracle. There is, however, a disagreement on what happened next. Some say that the Pythia went on to give Lycurgus the blueprint for the changes that he would institute at Sparta, but, Herodotus says, the Spartans themselves have a more prosaic take. They claim that he imported his ideas from Crete. Regardless of exactly how it happened, or whether his ideas came from Apollo or a large island to the south of mainland Greece, Lycurgus fundamentally altered the Spartan way of life, transforming the struggling city-state into the regimented military society for which it has been famous or notorious for over 2,000 years. The Spartans were so grateful for this new government that, when Lycurgus died, they built a shrine to him and held him in reverence, offering up sacrifices as they would to a demigod. Soon thereafter, Sparta began to flourish. And like the inhabitants of many a flourishing state, the Spartans began to think that they should be bigger, more powerful, and control more territory. They looked north, to Arcadia, the central region of the Peloponnese, which is the peninsula that comprises the southern Greek mainland. Um, you can find a map illustrating Sparta and its environs on this episode's page on the website. Before heading off to war, however, the Spartans decided to consult, you guessed it, the Oracle of Delphi. 
In response to their question of whether they should conquer the whole of Arcadia, the oracle replied, You ask me for Arcadia? That's a big request, which I will not grant. There are many men in Arcadia, hardy, reared on acorns, who will hinder you. But I won't begrudge you everything. I will give you Tegea to tread on as your dancing floor, and to measure out with rope its beautiful plain. The Spartans took the Pythia at her word, and focused their military might on Tegea, a large and prominent city in the southern part of Arcadia, not far from the Spartans' own territory. They marched confidently to the city, trusting in the oracle and assured that their victory would be imminent, carrying with them chains with which to enslave the Tegeans. But the Spartans were defeated, and were in fact taken prisoner in the very chains that they had brought. And yet the oracle wasn't wrong. Forced to work the land by the Tegeans, Spartan prisoners measured out fields with rope. As a brief capper to the story, Herodotus adds that even down to his time, the chains could be seen hanging in the temple of Athena Alea at Tegea. Some years later, the Spartans finally managed to defeat the Tegeans in a most curious way. After many years of nothing but failure in their struggle with Tegea, the Spartans, fed up, went back to Delphi to ask which god they had to win over to finally succeed. The oracle replied, There is a place, Tegea, on Arcadia's smooth plain, where two winds whirl under force, blow atop blow, and woe atop woe. There, the fertile earth lies atop the son of Agamemnon. If you claim possession of him, you will possess Tegea, too. With the prospect of victory again in sight, even couched in such confusing language, the Spartans looked everywhere, in and around Tegea for this son of Agamemnon. At last, a Spartan named Lycus cracked the riddle. It so happened that he had stopped by a blacksmith shop, marveling as he watched the smith forge some iron. Seeing that his visitor was amazed, the smith paused in his labors and said to Lycus, You think ironworking is something to marvel at? You should have seen what happened to me recently. I was trying to dig a well in my courtyard here, but I struck a coffin eight feet long. I opened it up, and inside there was a body just as big. I measured it, just to be sure, and then reburied it. Lycus pondered this, and realized that the giant corpse could be nothing other than the body of Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, the Greek hero and general who led the Greek forces at Troy. Interpreting the words of the oracle, Lycus now understood that the two winds were the air inside the smith's bellows, the blows were his hammer and anvil, and the woes were the forging of iron, a metal, since it's used for weapons, that has brought nothing but evil to the human race. Lycus hurried back to Sparta and told the other Spartans about his discovery. Soon thereafter, the Spartans made a big show of bringing Lycus to court on false charges, finding him guilty and banishing him from the city. He went back to Tegea and, returning to the same blacksmith, explained his sad plight and asked to rent the courtyard of the blacksmith to live in. The smith, however, didn't want to rent it out, and it took a long time to get him to agree to it. Once he succeeded in convincing the smith, Lycus promptly dug up the corpse and lugged it back to Sparta. And soon thereafter, the Spartans 
at last got the upper hand in battle against the Tegeans. By the time Croesus was conducting his inquiry, Sparta had conquered most of the Peloponnese. Well aware of the recent Spartan military victories, Croesus dispatched messengers to the city bearing gifts, and he instructed them to deliver the following message. Spartans, Apollo has declared that I should find a friend among the Greeks, and I have learned that you are the foremost power in Greece. Therefore, in accordance with the oracle, I call upon you in the desire to be your ally without any deceit or treachery. The Spartans had already heard of this prophecy that the oracle had given to Croesus, and Herodotus adds that they already had another connection with the king. The Spartans had wanted to buy some gold from Sardis in order to build a statue of Apollo, but the Lydian king had refused their offer and instead gave them the gold for free. Because of this charity, and because Croesus had done them the honor of choosing them first among all the Greek powers, the Spartans readily assented to be allies with the Lydians. Declaring themselves willing to come to the king's aid whenever he needed, they sealed the deal with a huge engraved bronze bowl. And by huge, I mean big enough to hold some 2,700 gallons. Herodotus adds, however, that the bull never made it to Sardis, and in his typical Herodotian way gives two conflicting accounts of what happens. The Spartans say that their ambassadors, on their way to Lydia, were sailing with the bull past the island of Samos when the Samians attacked them and made off with the gift. The Samians, on the other hand, claim that the Spartans were heading to Sardis too late, after it had already been captured by the Persians. Uh, spoiler alert, sorry. And so, the Spartans cut their losses and sold the bowl to some Samians. The Spartan bowl-bearers, once they returned home, used the Samians as a convenient excuse, claiming that the island dwellers had robbed them. And so, Herodotus concludes, these are the things that have been said about the bowl. And with that, we conclude our portion of today's text. Among the many famous features of Sparta was its lack of defensive walls. But, of course, it had no need of them. Lycurgus was supposed to have said, A city is well fortified, which has walls of men instead of brick. Well, as you may have noticed, this podcast has no walls. All it has, listeners, is you. So please, if you're enjoying this episode, head to lovethepodcast.com slash Herodotus to easily rate and review the podcast on a number of different platforms. And if, to extend the metaphor, you want to join the ranks of the famed 300, please head to patreon.com slash Herodotus podcast to pledge your support. I appreciate it more than I can say. And speaking of appreciation... Thank you to Aristocrates for joining the ranks of the elite. If you have comments or questions, feel free to reach out via email at herodotuspodcast at gmail.com. You can also get in touch via Facebook, Twitter at Herodcast, or on Instagram at Podcast. I always love to hear listener feedback. Thank you so much. And let's get back to Sparta. Today's text offers a lot to unpack, so let's start with the man himself, Lycurgus, the great lawgiver of the Spartans. He is, you'll recall, 
the second great lawgiver who has come to our attention after the sage Athenian Solon of Athens. And much like Solon did in his city, Lycurgus is credited for fixing a dysfunctional society and creating the Sparta that we have come to know and, if you are of a certain inclination, love. But that's where the similarities end. Solon was a real historical figure, even if his existence is buried beneath layers of legend and uncertainty. Lycurgus, on the other hand, is most likely only the name given to the causes of political, social, and economic changes that helped Sparta become one of the preeminent military powers in the Greek world. His existence was doubted even in antiquity. Although Herodotus could tell a relatively straightforward story about the lawgiver's achievements, some six centuries later, Plutarch, writing a biography of Lycurgus, faced the task of disentangling the thicket of contradicting stories that had sprouted since Herodotus's time. Plutarch begins his biography with these telling lines. As regards Lycurgus the lawgiver, on the whole there is nothing to be said that is not in dispute, as, indeed, there are differences in the accounts concerning his birth, his travels, his death, and most of all his political career— Least of all is there any agreement among historians as to when he lived. So, if we can't talk about Lycurgus, let's talk about his laws. As Herodotus records, the Spartan constitution was, supposedly, handed down to Lycurgus from the Pythia, even if the Spartans themselves dispute that. Plutarch repeats this story of the Delphic pedigree of Spartan law, which, he says, the Spartans themselves called the Retra, literally the proclamation. The name is intriguing, as it suggests that Spartan laws had a spoken origin, either from the mouth of the Pythia, or, as some have suggested, that they originated in a time predating writing in Greece. The term Retra has also been used to support the idea that Sparta's laws were not written, but rather passed on through oral tradition. However, both archaeological evidence, as well as Common sense suggests that that couldn't have been the case. It would take a very long time to fully discuss the changes attributed to Lycurgus, but here's a quick outline. Much like at Athens before Solon's reforms, the problems that had been afflicting Sparta were class-based. The poorer citizens were discontent, but unlike at Athens, there was an additional problem. Unrest among the population of slaves, called helots, that Sparta had absorbed when they annexed the neighboring territory of Messenia. In short, the Helots greatly outnumbered the Spartans, so the prospect of a large revolt was terrifying and posed an existential problem for the city. This was addressed by reorganizing Spartan society into three tiers. On the top were the Spartiates, a fairly small number of elites who were raised to be full-time fighters, undergoing the famously harsh Spartan training methods. The Spartiates were forbidden from any kind of manual or commercial labor, not only to keep them focused on their duties, but, as we'll see, they had no real need of money. The economic slack was taken up by the middle tier, the perioikoi, literally those who dwell around the city, who supported the Spartan state economically, benefiting both from their commercial activity as well as the protection afforded by the Spartiates. And, again on the bottom, were the helots, slaves owned collectively by the Spartan government. The political system that emerged from the so-called Lycurgan constitution was one that distributed authority among small groups of individuals, and yet still allowed for, 
some measure of collective decision-making. Sparta had two hereditary kings, equal in authority and both supposedly descended from the hero Heracles. They weren't absolute monarchs, but worked within a complex political system, wielding power that was religious, judicial, as well as military. They were the chief priests of Sparta, and as such were the ones responsible for communicating with Delphi. They also oversaw certain kinds of lawsuits, and most famously served as generals on campaign, where their authority was unquestionable. In other judicial matters, power was held by the ephors, the overseers, an annually elected body who oversaw most criminal and civil legal cases. In addition to the ephors was the gerousia, the assembly of elders, which consisted of 28 men over the age of 60 who were elected for life by the Spartiate citizenry. The gerousia had the responsibility of deciding important matters of state. Once they made their decision, they sent their proposal to a legislative body made up of the entire Spartiate citizenry, the ecclesia, who would vote on it. However, members of the ecclesia couldn't debate or make their own proposals. Their options were a simple yes or no on what the gerousia proposed. Now, that's a very complicated way to run a city, but it makes a certain kind of sense. The big decisions facing Sparta were in the hands of unelected monarchs or of older experienced men with lifetime appointments. The people, or at least a very, very small subsection of the people who were regarded as worthy, had an extremely limited role in governance, but they did have a voice. This was a system designed not to be efficient or even fair, but above all else, slow and deliberate. Nothing, I think, sums up the conservative nature of Spartan society better than one of the stories told about Lycurgus. Again, like Solon, it was said that after he put forward his reforms, he left Sparta and ordained that no constitutional changes could take place until his return. Solon, you'll recall, supposedly spent a decade cruising around the Mediterranean, chatting with rulers like Croesus and learning about the world, before he returned. Lycurgus, on the other hand, left Sparta, went straight to Delphi, and starved himself to death. The message of the gesture couldn't be clearer. No change will ever be permitted. Of course, that's the story. It's not the reality. It's clear that the Spartan system of governance did change as time went on, not radically, but noticeably, even as that myth of unchangeability persisted. Let me conclude by pointing out a feature of today's text. It's chock-full of Herodotian evidence. There's the inclusion of all those Delphic prophecies, which demonstrates that Herodotus, by quoting them, must have researched them. And then there's the opsis, the physical evidence, of the Spartan chains and the huge Spartan bowl. With both of these objects, Herodotus points out where they were located in his day, strongly implying that you too could go see them, if you didn't believe him. And as I've said before, the quotations, the focus on objects, and Herodotus's repeated inclusion of differing accounts of the stories that he tells are all evidence, of a sort, meant to back up his writing. They support the narrative, even as they interrupt it. Of course, whether we choose to believe that evidence is another matter altogether. Next time on the podcast, it's back to Croesus, who begins his assault on the expansionist Persians in the hopes of, um destroying a great empire, and a key figure is introduced, the Persian king Cyrus the Great. 
See you next time on the Herodotus Podcast. <laughs>